Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, if you want to turn there. So in uh, 1 Corinthians, well actually let me back up for a moment. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is uh, giving a, a lesson or he's, he's answering a question uh, having to deal with meat sacrifice to idols. It was an issue in Corinth. A lot of, a lot of Gentile pagans were coming to faith in the Lord and, and so now they're trying to get as far away from idolatry as possible and yet that was the place where you got the best cuts of meat. It was like Costco in Corinth, you know. That, that's where the meat was, you know. And uh, good cuts and it was cheap and everything and so uh, some people were like, you know what, it's an idol's nothing, I'll just go buy it, you know, it's no big deal. Well, some were getting offended by that. Not only that, but he also had Jewish believers that, you know, they don't want to have anything to do with Gentiles. So they're really struggling with the church, with this new concept of both Gentiles and Jews coming together. And so Paul addresses a question having to deal with that in chapter 8. And in, towards the end of chapter 8, Paul makes a statement. He says, hey, if meat's going to cause my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again. I don't have that conviction, to be honest with you. I love meat, so I'm sorry <laughs> if you're offended. I'm sorry. No, I'm just kidding. I do love meat. Um, but, uh, but that's what Paul stated. And, and, you know, I said last week, you know, maybe, maybe people would say, well, that's hypothetical, Paul. You're saying if that happens. I'm, well, here in chapter 9, Paul's going to give another example, and it's an example from his life where he had rights, and yet he decides to surrender his rights. So that's what we're looking at this morning. In the very beginning here in verses 1 and 2, Paul establishes his apostleship. Not that it needed to be established because Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ, but there were individuals in Corinth that did not look at him that way. They didn't think he was like one of the 12, you know, that he was, he was a, a Johnny-come-lately kind of guy that was just aspiring to apostleship. And so they looked down upon Paul. And so Paul, in the verse, first two verses here, establishes his apostleship. So verse 1, and you know, he's asking these questions, and they're rhetorical questions, and the answer, really the question, or I should say he's implying that the answer is yes to all of these. So first of all, he says there, verse 1, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? So he's trying to establish this in the, in the minds of the Corinthians. Am I not an apostle? What's an apostle? It's someone who is sent. It's an ambassador. Uh, Listen, Paul didn't assume the role of apostleship. He didn't become a new baby believer and goes, you know what? Oh, man, I'm going to be an apostle like those guys. I think I'm, I feel like the Lord's calling me. to. No, that's not what Paul did. Paul was called by the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he opens 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Paul called uh, an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. It was God who appointed Paul. Um, later on in chapter 15, verse 9, he says, For I am the least of the apostles who am not even worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He was an apostle, but a very humble apostle. And he recognized that it was God that called him. So am I not an apostle? The answer is yes. Am I not free? What is Paul meaning by that? Um, listen, because Paul wasn't appointed as an apostle by the will of the Lord Jesus Christ, he was not under authority of men. Okay, there was no man that uh, ordained Paul to be an apostle. He had not been sent out by men. He had actually been sent out literally by Jesus Christ. 
Um, all the original apostles, they had been called by the Lord. They didn't aspire to that office. They had been ordained and sent by the Lord. And it was the apostles, the original 12 apostles, who had the first spiritual authority in the church. And they, of course, received their authority from the Lord Jesus Christ, from the Holy Spirit. They were the ones who ordained men. They were the ones that instructed the church. They are the ones that wrote the New Testament scriptures that you and I are looking at this morning. It was them that did that. And so, am I not free? Yes, he's free in the sense of he's not under a group of men or somebody that appointed him or some organization. Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Now, that was a requirement of an apostle. And yet, Paul was saved after Jesus died and rose from the dead. What's the deal with that? Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8, Paul explains how he, uh, the Lord met him on the road to Damascus when he was going to persecute the church there in Syria. It says, Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. And you know the story. The Lord Jesus Christ met Peter on the road, or excuse me, Paul, blinded him. He was Saul of Tarsus at the time and completely, radically transformed his life at that point. So has Paul seen Jesus Christ our Lord? The answer is yes. Are you not my work in the Lord? Now he's referring to the church in Corinth. It was proof of his calling because there was fruit. Listen, I've known people, you know, so Calvary Chapel originally started in California in the early or mid-60s. And a lot of hippies were getting saved, and, and some people out of there, a lot of, a lot of the uh, big Calvary chapels that are spread out throughout the United States, mainly on the coast, the big ones, um, they were guys that were just, you know, they were under Pastor Chuck Smith, and at one point they're like, you know, a sense that the Lord's calling me, or maybe, maybe it was confirmed through Pastor Chuck or somebody else. Um, they, they went out and, uh, and started Calvary chapels, and Calvary chapels grew and stuff. But I've also known people, even around in my sphere of, of, of influence and stuff. They go, you know, I think I'm being called to be a pastor. It's like, that's awesome. But here's a real test if you're called to be a pastor. Are there anybody listening to you? I mean, seriously, and I don't mean to knock anybody, but listen, if you feel like you're called to be a pastor, yet nobody recognizes that. Nobody's there to, you know, nobody comes to your Bible study. Nobody's there, you know. I don't know, you know. Maybe, maybe you're not called. What Paul says, are you not the work of my Lord? And look at, there's a church in Corinth. So yeah, there was spiritual fruit based on that calling. Verse 2, if I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So Paul started the church in Corinth, as I mentioned earlier. Not only that, but he lived among them. He worked among them. He spent a lot of time. In fact, that was one of the longest stretches of time that Paul spent was there in Corinth with them. And so Paul says, hey, there's others that maybe, that maybe they don't look at me as an apostle, but listen, you know me. You know that I've been called. <clears throat> now, from verses 3 through verse 14, so Paul establishes in the, in the minds or his argument, I guess, that he is an apostle. Now, in verses 3 through 14, Paul establishes what his rights are as an apostle. Verse 3, my defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other, uh, other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? As an apostle and a minister of the gospel, Paul had the right 
to be supported with basic necessities like food and financial assistance. Uh, he had the right for his wife. Now, we believe that Paul was not married. He may have been married earlier. Maybe she left him or she died or whatever. We don't know. But we know, based on his letters, that at this time he's single. So, but theoretically, if his wife had been alive or if he had a wife, um, she would have been, she would have had, he would have had the right to bring her along and she could have received the support. Can you imagine going to Corinth and he's got his wife and Paul, they, they come in and say, Paul, here's some food for you, but you know what? <laughs> Your wife's not an apostle. She can't eat anything. I mean, that's absurd, right? So Paul says, you know, I have a right for my wife, if I had a wife, to be supported as well as me. Um, and, uh, and he had the right to not have to support himself financially to work in order to minister to them. And yet, that is exactly what the church in Corinth expected of Paul and Barnabas, to minister to them and yet provide for their own needs while ministering to them. And so Paul here gives the basic... Uh, uh, the basis for what he's saying here that ministers of the gospel should be able to receive support from the ministry and he gives some examples the first one is from human logic he talks about soldiers and farmers there verse 7 whoever goes to war at his own expense who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock I, I was uh, I enlisted in the in the United States Coast Guard when I got out of high school, and uh, I, you know I can imagine. I remember going down to the recruiter's office, and and that was quite an experience. I uh, I won't go into it too much, but the weirdest thing was once I got sworn in, they I had to drive. I was in San Jose, and I had to drive up to Alameda, which is about an hour drive or so. I get into this car, and there's no handles. There's it's like. I'm in this car and there's no way to get out. I'm like, and I'm in the back seat. And the recruiter's in the front seat, driving me to the thing. Me and two other guys with long hair, you know, hippie guys, you know, sitting there. And and it's like, I'm like, what did I just get myself into, you know? But anyways, that's kind of a side thing. Um, so, could you imagine at that enlistment that the the recruiter says, oh yeah, you feel free to join the Coast Guard. By the way, do you have a life vest? Uh, do you have a dinghy or maybe a canoe? You know, I mean, you're going to be on the water. You're going to need something, or you know, just. Do you have any savings? We need to, we're all pitching in, we're gonna buy a ship. I mean, that would be absurd, right? That would just be ridiculous. Those of you that have joined the military, you know that they supply everything from your clothes, your underwear, everything, they supply everything. And they give you three square meals a day and everything. That's, it would be expected, because you're serving them. It would be equally absurd for a farmer or a shepherd to not be able to eat of the fruit from their flock to not be able to, to, to get some of the, what, they are, what they are taking care of or growing or whatever. So that's the example from human logic. Verse 8, do I say these things as a mere man or does not the law say the same thing also? So now Paul is going to the scriptures. He's, he's going to give a scriptural basis. Verse 9, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. So what Paul is saying, you know that scripture, and he quotes out of the Old Testament, is God just wanting to prevent cruelty to animals? I mean, is God just, you know, uh, uh, just that's all he's concerned with? The principle applies to being kind to animals. But how much more does it apply to people, to ministers of the gospel is what Paul is saying. He who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. What is hope? 
Hope is the expectation of coming good, right? We all hope that things are going to happen in our lives. We all, we, we have things that we hope. The farmer labors within the field, does all the planning and everything with the hope, and it's a realistic hope, that there's going to be a harvest from his labor. There's going to be fruit from his labor. And so Paul's saying, hey, it's not unreasonable that uh, the minister of the gospel can expect fruit from his labor in the form of financial support. Verse 11, if we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? Verse 12, if others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. So evidently, the Corinthians were supporting other ministries, whether they were false teachers or whatever. There were others that were being supported. And so Paul says, hey, if, if others, how much more me? You know me. You know us. Verse 13, do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? So not only, Paul is saying, not only does Old Testament law support the principle, but Old Testament practice does as well. Listen, in the Old Testament, the priests would eat of the meat that was brought to the temple, that was offered. They would get a portion of it. Not only that, but in Deuteronomy, 8, Deuteronomy 18, it tells them they would also get the first fruits of grain, new wine, olive oil, and the first of the fleece of sheep. That, all that stuff belonged to the priests. God was providing for the priests because they were ministering for him. Verse 14, even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. This would be a great time to ask for a pay raise. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just joking. It's just joking. Um, <clears throat> listen, when Jesus sent out the 12 apostles in Matthew chapter 10, he told them, he said, provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staves, for a worker is worthy of his food. So a pastor, a minister, the apostles, they were worthy of reasonable financial support. Now, reasonable financial support, not a jet airplane. Uh, you know, I've heard these, some of these guys say, you know, I needed this jet airplane because God doesn't want me to spend my valuable time in coach, you know, and I, I, I've got to be able to fly. I can't be waiting. I mean, it's this, my time's precious. This is like God's, you know, it's like their God's, their gift to God's gift to God. I don't know why I look at it, but you know, there's a reason there's, there's a, there's a, there's a reasonable uh, thing to this. Not a fancy car, a big house, designer clothes, so that he can portray that, you know, God wants all his children to be wealthy, and yet that's exactly what happens in, in some cases. This is not scripture. This is my own opinion, okay? So you can take it or leave it, whatever. If a pastor is in a much higher financial bracket than the people that he ministers to, you know, he's, he's like, he's very much more wealthy than, than the people that he ministers to, there is a problem. My opinion, okay? I'm not saying scripture says it. I think there's a problem with a pastor. I really do. I believe that. But on the flip side of that, if there's a pastor that's struggling to get by and he's ministering to an affluent congregation, I think that's also a, pa a problem. And yet, I think that's a problem with the congregation. Again, that's just my, my take. Listen, Paul's using human logic, Old Testament law, Old Testament practice 
the present practice of other ministers, uh, Jesus' own command to, uh, to the disciples to support Paul's contention here that as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul had the right to be supported in the ministry. And because of that, Paul could have demanded that he be supported by the Corinthians he ministered to. It's biblical. And yet, Paul chose to set aside that right. Hey, he had every right. It's biblically supported. He had every right to do it, and yet he chooses to set that aside. Look at verse uh, 15. But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things that it should be done, for, uh, done so to me, for it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. Paul says, I haven't used that right, and I'm not writing now to make you feel guilty. So it's like, okay, I guess we better give Paul some money. Verse 16, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Listen, because the Lord had called Paul and sent him, Paul had to obey the call of the Lord. There was no choice. I mean, he could have chose to be disobedient, but Paul's like, man, I, I've got to do this. For some... Their ambition to be a minister, they, they, they have an ambition to be a minister or to be in some ministry position. And I've seen that in ministry before. Some people get into ministry because it gives them a sense of purpose. They're, they're like wandering. They need some purpose, so ministry is their purpose. Or I've seen it where people do that for a sense of self-worth. They want to feel maybe important or they want that recognition, and so they're going to get into ministry because because it, it satisfies something that they're lacking in their own uh, in their own minds or whatever. Some people do it to become rich, and I think they're delusional, to be honest with you, <laughs> at least in my experience. Um, for others, they either can't or they're too lazy to hold down a job in the in the secular life, and so it's like, hey, I'm I think ministry is a good thing. I'm going to go into ministry and get supported by the ministry. I'll be honest with you, okay? I'm going to be totally frank with you guys here this morning. My desire to get into ministry was this. I wanted to work twice as hard for half the pay. And so, hey, it worked out. It worked out. I met my goal. Listen, it's so important for any man or woman called into any ministry, whatever the position, that it's the Lord that calls them rather than their own ambition. If you're getting into ministry, it's because you're trying to make have a sense of self-worth, or you're trying you want recognition. Man, check your heart, because that's the wrong that's the wrong motive to be in ministry. Adam Clark said this: "Woe to that man who runs when God has not sent him, and woe to him who refuses to run or who ceases to run when God has sent him." It's funny when I was called to be a pastor, I was just walking in a down a a path here in, in Rochester. We had just started an outreach, and I wasn't the pastor. It was so guys were coming down and, and, and starting doing the outreach, and I felt clearly that the Lord had called me to be in the ministry. I came home. It was a, it was a lunchtime walk. I came home. I was working full-time. came home and told Teresa. I said, Teresa, I said, uh, I don't know how to tell you this, but I, I, I really feel like the Lord's calling me into ministry, and I don't want to do it. I said, don't tell anybody. For six months, I, she we didn't say it to anybody. The Lord confirmed it through someone else later and said, hey, we feel like the Lord's called you to be a pastor. And it's like, okay, I knew six months ago, but I didn't want to say anything. So Paul says, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. You know, there are a lot of Old Testament prophets who would have identified with Paul, what he's saying here in verse 16. Jeremiah is a perfect example. 
Jeremiah 20, verse 9. Then I said, I will not make mention of Jeremiah had been persecuted so much. Could you imagine? Yeah, I'm, I'm blessed that you're here this morning. Jeremiah had a ministry for, I don't know, 20, 40 years, something like that, and not one person came, not one convert, and yet he remained faithful in his calling. If there was nobody here this morning, I'd be like, eh, maybe I'm not called to be a pastor, give up, you know. I'd grow discouraged. I wish I didn't, but that's the reality. I'm human. So Paul, or excuse me, Jeremiah was feeling persecuted, and he's like, he wants to give up there. Verse 9, he says, Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. He, he was called, and he's, called, he's like, I, I can't do anything but share God's word. Amos said something too. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Verse 17, Paul says this. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I've been entrusted with a stewardship. Listen, if Paul had just become, uh, decided to become an apostle and volunteered his life for the service of the gospel, he could expect a reward. But the reality was Paul was called uh, by the Lord and sent by him. And so Paul says, I've been entrusted with stewardship. I, I have to do this. I'm called to do this. He had a calling to fulfill. Verse 18, what is my reward then? Here's his reward. That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. Paul's reward from his stewardship to preach the gospel was that he could do it free of charge to the Corinthians because they had such an issue with it. He could boast against the false teachers who were there just to fleece the flock. And that happens even down in our day today. <clears throat> Years ago, when, <laughs> when we started, we were just doing a Bible study at the time. And I remember meeting this guy, and he was t we were just talking and, and uh, telling him about the Bible study and, the, you know, becoming a church and things like that. And he asked me, what kind of work do you do? And I said, well, you know, I, I've worked this full-time job and stuff. His comment was, man, that's good to hear. I think all preachers should work. <laughs> And I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. But anyways, he didn't have a clue. Um, listen, we're going to find out in 2 Corinthians what enabled Paul to minister to the Corinthians without financial support. It was because other churches were stepping in to minister financially to Paul to enable him to do that. Not only that, but Paul was working as a tent maker to support himself in Corinth. And so Paul had the rights to, to demand, as, a, as a, it was biblical, he could demand that they support him. And Paul, yet, he decides to lay aside his rights. And now in verse 19 through 23, he's going to explain why, why he laid aside his rights to financial support. Look at verse 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. Though I am free, he says. That means though I am exempt or I'm unrestrained or I'm not bound by any obligation, I'm unconstrained, I'm unfettered, I'm independent, I, you know, I don't answer to man. Yet, I have made myself a servant to all. And that word servant, it's a voluntary servant. It's voluntary bondage, Paul said. I've, I've even though I'm a free man, I am enslaved myself to all. Metaphorically, that word means to give myself wholly to one's needs and service, to make myself a bondman to him. You think about a slave. 
A slave serves wholly at the pleasure of his master. A slave doesn't have rights. A slave may have an opinion, but they're not supposed to voice it. A slave does whatever is commanded of him without complaint. Why? Because he's a slave. And so why did Paul make himself a slave? There's a reason that I might win the more. That's all that Paul was concerned with was the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this rhetorically. Do you make yourself a bondservant to all in order to win them to Jesus Christ? Or are you one person that's got to demand your rights? Verse 20. And to the Jews, I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. Listen, Paul understood perfectly clear because he writes on it in the book of Galatians and other places. He understood that he was free from the law of Jesus or from the law of Moses. Why? Because Jesus Christ fulfilled it when he died on the cross. The life that he that he lived and the and the death that he that he fulfilled the law of Moses perfectly. And yet, and Paul understood this, and yet in order to not offend unbelieving Jews that he was ministering to, he still observed certain Jewish customs that he wouldn't have had to, but he did. In Acts chapter 18, we understand when he went to Jerusalem, he was observing the Nazarite vow, which is what Jewish young men would do. In Acts chapter 21, he paid for some young Jewish men to be able to observe a perfect purification ceremony. It might have been the same thing, the Nazarite vow. In Acts chapter 16, he had young Gentile Timothy circumcised in order to not offend the Jews in every city that they ministered to. Now, you know, when I was studying this, I, okay, I'm going to give you a glimpse into my mind. I have this picture in my mind. Paul and Timothy, they're right next to each other, right? Paul's the Jew, Timothy's Gentile. And Paul's saying, to the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law is under the law that I might win those who are under the law. And so therefore... Timothy, I want you to get circumcised. <laughs> I'm just like, can you imagine poor Timothy? He's like, what? <laughs> huh? You, what? You know, hey, Paul, that's your, that's your burden. Why don't you get circumcised? Like, Paul, I'm sorry, I really was. <laughs> you got to do it. You know, I, I just, I don't know, that's the way I think. But anyways, seriously, though, think about it. What would make a young Gentile man like Timothy, who knew, who understood probably from hearing Paul teaching that he didn't have to be circumcised. I don't think it's a pleasurable thing, okay? Um, that he would have to be circumcised, and yet he did it in obedience to Paul. What would make a person do that? And I think the reason, the, what would cause a person to do it is he saw the example in Paul's life. And Paul says, hey, I've got every right, but I'm going to lay aside those rights because the gospel is more important than my personal rights. Paul, Timothy witnessed Paul being a bondservant. He was a student of Paul, and Paul wasn't one of these guys that just taught and then lived a separate life different. Paul lived out exactly what he taught. You know, you and I, we can preach high and lofty Christian principles of people around us, you know, quote verses and do all this stuff. But let me ask you this. Do they see the principles of the gospel lived out in our lives? It's such an important thing. People watch us much more than they listen to us, believe it or not. Verse 21. To those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without laws. Now, so now he's talking about the Gentiles. The, the Jewish people were under the law, under the law of Moses. The Gentiles were without the law. They didn't, they didn't have to uh, be under the law of Moses. 
And so what Paul is saying is basically, and we see it in scriptures and other letters, he didn't require new Gentile believers to be circumcised. He did Timothy, but it wasn't a requirement. It was, you know, just so that they could minister to others. But any other Gentile that came to faith in the Lord, Tim, Paul didn't say, hey, well, you first got to be circumcised before you can be a Christian. You got to be a Jew first before you can be a Christian. That's basically what that, uh, what that was saying. And that's what exactly what the Judaizers, Judaizers required of people. Paul wasn't afraid to eat with or be in the home of a Gentile. A Jewish person was not supposed to step foot in a Gentile's home to defile themselves. Paul had no issue with that. Um, in Galatians, we read that Peter, you know, Peter was ministering alongside Paul in different places at different times. And uh, Peter, as soon as Judaizers or Jewish people came from Jerusalem to visit him, he pulled back from the Gentiles. He was being a hypocrite, and Paul called him on the carpet for that. You know, the thing, if you do what Paul did here, there's always a risk when you live like Paul that you're going to be accused of, of being, you know, unlawful or, or uh, you know, misusing grace or whatever from people that are really into legalism. Uh, they're going to cons- they're going to say you're inconsistent, you're a hip- hipoc- hypocrite, whatever. But you know what? Paul didn't care. Why? Because he wanted to reach people for the gospel. That's all that Paul cared about. That was his aim. That was his goal. And then verse 22: To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become that I might by all means save some. The weak. We talked about it last week. Uh, Robertson's word picture says weak is an unenlightened, unenlightened conscience. And what it, what it is, we talked about last week, it's the person who knows they've been set free from the work of the cro- by the work of the cross, but they can't overcome their conscience. And what I mean by that is they can't overcome how they were raised. You know, they were raised in some legalistic environment. They know that they've been set free, and yet they can't overcome that. Uh, they, they, they can't overcome that based on what they were taught or, or maybe what they experienced in the past. That's what Paul is referring to as the weak person. A legalist is you know, basically what he's, what he's referring to. A person that gets offended very easily. Verse 23, Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. Listen, Paul wasn't trying to be all things to all men in order to be accepted by people, okay? Paul wasn't a people, per, uh, people pleaser. Um, he wasn't trying to gain some advantage, trying to manipulate people by being, you know, I'm going to be really, I'm going to be like you so I can get something from you. That wasn't what Paul did. Paul only had the gospel in mind. Giving up his, his rights and his liberties, therefore, was nothing to Paul if it meant that it put him in a position that he could minister to those that he was around. And that's, that's the way Paul lived. And so now we get to verse 24 through the rest of the chapter. And Paul's going to explain his underlying philosophy for his ministry and for his life. This is, this is what it boils down to, why Paul laid down his rights and how he did. Uh, verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Well, who am I? I'm in a race, you know, and I, I think of this race with all these people, you know, beside me, and I'm, I'm going to, I'm competing against someone like Paul. <laughs> I'm never going to win that race. I know that. Someone like Billy Graham, forget it. We're not competing with Paul. You're not competing with me. You're not even competing with the person next to you. It's your race that God's given you yourself. 
Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We each have a race that is set before us. The, Lord, the Lord's got a purpose and a plan for each of our lives. And he's, he's brought us into these situations and he's given us this sphere of influence for us to minister for him in, in wherever he's, and he's given you gifts and talents. You have your own race to run. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, his poema, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We don't have to lose our personalities when we come to faith in Christ. God has, takes our personalities. He takes our background. He takes, he takes all these things, and he's, he's using it. He's molding it and shaping it to serve a specific purpose in this life. Are you being used by the Lord this morning? Are you, are you surrendered to that? So Paul says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run? We're all in this race, guys. But one receives the prize, run in such a way that you may obtain it, the prize. How do I run in such a way that I may obtain the prize? Uh, prize, excuse me. Well, Acts 20, verse 24. Paul talks about different things that were happening in his life, and yet in verse 24 he says, but none of these things move me. Nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul says, man, I, my life isn't that important to me. Man, is that something that you and I can say? Do I count my life dear to myself? Or though I'm free from all men, have I made myself a servant to all? Paul didn't have an issue with that. Let me ask you this. What's going to move you? What's going to move me? What's going to keep me from finishing my race? Or what's going to even keep me from finishing my race with joy? I've seen Christians that are going through life and there's no joy. That's sad. What's it going to take for you to give up or to grow discouraged or to walk out there, you know, walk out? Paul says... Nothing, nothing's going to set, nothing's going to do that. Why? Because I, my life doesn't matter. I'm, a, I'm an instrument, I'm a vessel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It just doesn't matter. And that's the way Paul lived his life. He gets to the end of his life, the last letter he writes, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, and he looks back on his life and he says, man, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. And I hope that's something that each one of us will be able to do when we get to the, our last breath. Man, I, I fought the fight. I've, I finished that race that you gave me, Lord. Verse 25, and everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. What does temperate mean? It means exercising self-restraint. self control. You know, uh, in the Isthmus games, which that was in that area in Corinth, Paul was very familiar with it. Like It was kind of like a forerunner to the Olympic games. In the uh, Isthmus games, athletes, they ran races, they boxed, they did all these uh, sp uh, sports competitions to receive a crown of either pine leaves 
uh, at some, one point it was parsley leaves, or later on in the, in the olives, in the Olympics it was olive branches. Those things, I mean, you get your olive branch, how long would that last? Eventually it's gonna decompose, right? It's a perishable crown, and yet the athletes, they would deny themselves all kinds of stuff because they wanted to get that crown. That, that's, that was their goal, something that's gonna fade away in a few years. Paul says, how much more should we for the crown of righteousness, for a crown that doesn't fade away? How much more should we be temperate, self-controlled? Therefore, verse 26, therefore I run thus. So he's talking about his race. Not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, and it's talking about boxing, not as one who beats the air. So he runs not with uncertainty. He runs with a clear perception of his object and of the true manner and result of his striving. Have you ever watched someone in a race? My son, my oldest son, uh, was for many years, he broke records at his high school for cross country. And it'd be funny, I, you know, I'm, I was never a runner. I only ran when someone bigger than me was chasing me in high school. That's the only time I ran. I could run pretty fast then. But, so I wasn't into running. But my sons, actually all three of my sons were into running. But my first one was really into it. And uh, I'd come over there all casually, hey, how's it going? And he'd be like, can't talk to you. You know, he had this, he was like, focused. He was in the zone. You guys probably know that if you're in sports and stuff. He was in the zone. And uh, I didn't understand it. I thought he was being offensive, you know, and stuff. But then I realized, you know, it's just, it's just, he's so focused on running and he would run really well. That's what Paul is talking about. I run not with uncertainty. Listen, if you're in a race, you don't want to look to the right side or to the left side. Why? Because it's going to distract you and it's going to slow you down. You don't look behind you, you know, you don't get nostalgic. Oh, look, oh, man, I love the old days. No. Sorry, Tracy. <laughs> I can't even say anything funny about that. It's just, sorry. <laughs> Listen, any movement, even, even eyes away from what you're going at, it's going to slow you down. It's going to take you, it's going to, it's going to mess up your stride. It's going to, it's going to affect you winning that race. Paul says, man, I don't look aside. I don't get distracted. I don't look behind. Man, I'm looking at that goal and that goal is Jesus Christ. He's not slowing down when things move him. Man, a wind comes, knocks him sideways. And you guys, you've had that in your life. Something you're going, you're going and thinking everything's fine, and then all of a sudden this something comes out from the side that you never saw coming, and man, it blows you. It's like, whoa, I didn't see that coming. Paul says, man, that doesn't matter. Man, I'm still running. That goal, it doesn't matter what's happening. I'm, I'm pressing on. Not taking a break from the race, but continuing hard toward the finish line. And also this, realizing that the race is on. Some people get, you know, it's like, well, one of these days I'll get serious about my walk with the Lord. Now, you're in a race right now, folks. You're in a race right now, and there's people watching you and judging you, whether they should or not. They're judging you, and they're watching you. They're watching how you run your race. Again, like I said, people are not so much listening to us as they're watching us. Hey, does your life match up with what you profess to believe? How are, how are, you, how are you living out, you know, disappointments? How are you doing, doing with, you know, temptations and stuff? Are, you know, are you just like everybody else? Or are you running the race? People are watching us. So he uses that, I run thus not with uncertainty. And then he says, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. 
Now, as one who beats the air, you know, in uh, boxing, way back even in the Olympics, in, in those times, because they've got uh, old documents where people wrote about it, uh, practicing without an adversary, excuse me, you know, boxing, it's called shadow boxing. It goes all the way back to the Olympics and those Isthmus games, where you're just basically beating into the air, you know, you're, you're warming up or whatever, you're practicing. Um, it could be referring to that, because we don't really know. It could also be referring to an adversary that is quick and nimble and all over the place. And so they're, you know, you're going to punch him, and before you know it, they're over there or they're ducking, and you're, you're just, you're, none, of your, none of your hits are, are connecting. You're just beating the air. Paul says, I don't, I don't fight like that. I'm keeping my eye on my adversary. You know, boxers, they watch old boxing matches of their opponents ahead of time because they want to learn, hey, how does he bob and weave, and, you know, how does, how does he deal with, you know, how does he, how does he do his fight? Because they have, everyone has their own trademarks and what they do and stuff. We're to do that too. The Bible says, uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.11, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we're not ignorant of his devices. We, we, we understand how Satan works. We understand how he tempts us. We understand how he attacks us. We got to keep our eye on Okay, he's there. Okay, I'm not going to get thrown by that. Verse 27, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Listen, before you and I came to Christ, our body, our flesh was on top. You say, well, what, are you, what are you talking about? Listen, our fleshly desires, our mind, and our emotions ruled us before we came to Christ. You know, we, we were swayed by our emotions, we're swayed by our desires, whatever. Our body was in control. It's on top. But after coming to Christ, our spirit that was once dead is now made alive through Christ Jesus. And now our fleshly desires, our thoughts, our emotions, in other words, our body, it still acts like it's in control. My body thinks it's in control. My flesh is always saying, hey, 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 do what I say do that you know hey what about that you know my body thinks it's in control but now that I'm a born-again believer in Jesus Christ I have to put my body under submission under my spirit my spirit which is made alive in Christ Jesus I can no longer be ruled by my emotions situations change listen when you, when you if you're ruled by your emotions when there's good emotion good things happen your emotions you, you'll be good when bad things happen, you're going to be bad and stuff. Man, I don't want to be ruled by my emotions. That's being ruled by my body. That's, that's where my body's on top, my flesh. I want to be guided by my spirit, keeping my focus on Jesus Christ. I can no longer entertain thoughts that lead me into sin. I have to take every thought captive. And I'm not just talking lust, because that's an issue that many of us deal with. I'm not talking about anger, unforgiveness, uh, jealousy, whatever it might be. I got to take those thoughts captive. I'm not going to let my flesh rule over me. I can no longer be driven by my fleshly desires. Why? Because I don't want to become disqualified. Ooh, you could lose your salvation. That's not what I'm saying. I don't think that's what Paul is saying. He's not talking about losing his salvation, but maybe losing a ministry. Maybe losing a ministry or losing my witness to those that are watching me or losing my spiritual rewards that you and I are going to get at the Bema Seat judgment of Jesus Christ. We're going to be getting rewards, folks. You may say, well, I don't really, 
I don't, I don't need any rewards, you know, I'm just a servant and stuff. Listen, when you get to heaven and you see how worthy Jesus Christ is, the Bible says we're going to be throwing, we're going to be, any crowns that we got, we're going to be laying them at the feet of Jesus because he's so worthy. I guarantee at that moment, every one of us that has a relationship with Jesus Christ, you're going to wish you had a million crowns to throw down in front of Jesus Christ because he's so worthy. It's not I'm greening crowns for myself. No, I want to be able to give crowns to Jesus because of who he is and what he's done to me in my life. I guarantee you're going to want rewards. So don't let this life, don't, get, don't, let, don't lose your rewards because you're ruled by your flesh, okay? Paul is more than willing to set aside his liberties for the sake of the gospel and, as we saw in chapter 8, for the sake of not offending a weaker brother or sister in the faith. Paul says, you know what? It's not that important to me. I'll just set it aside because you and your faith and your walk with the Lord is more important to me than my rights. Everything Paul does counts. Why? Because he knows he's in a race with an eternal finish line. You guys, each one of us, we're in a race. Whether you whether you're, realize it or not, you're in the race if you're a Christian this morning. You're in the race. People are watching us. Everything that we do counts. And so let's keep our eyes focused on the goal of Jesus Christ.